Good morning. Let's take our Bibles and go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I think you would agree that we are pilgrims. Just think about it. Every Sunday as we come together, we find ourselves pitching our tents on different sections of this sacred terrain that we call the Bible. And at times this is even more apparent, especially when we enter important seasons of the year. And Christmas is one of those exceptionally important seasons in which a deviation from the regular preaching diet is called for. The subject of the incarnation of the Son of God has no equal in weightiness. And the opportunity to address it should be welcomed. And so this month and for the entire month of December... We are going to pitch our tents on a sacred terrain which undoubtedly explains almost everything, explains almost everything. It is one of the profoundest and most impressive passages in all of Scripture. It is a type of ocean into which all the rivers of the Christian faith converge. I'm speaking of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And since this will be our campground for the entire month of December, let me briefly explain why we are here. When you first encounter John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, you may not immediately sense a Christmas flavor in it. However, this is only because we are not savoring the main ingredient. The main ingredient. And the main ingredient is highly supremely indeed Christmassy in its flavor. Said ingredient is found in verse 14. The beginning of verse 14, and the word became flesh. Those five words are Christmas. Those five words are Christmas. And those five words will serve as the anchor for our meditations during the entire Christmas month of December. But as with every recipe, there are several other ingredients, four in all, that we must take into account for this Christmas to be fully savored. The plan is to put these ingredients together on the 25th as we consider verses 14 through 18. But all these ingredients are interrelated and interwoven. My hope is that once all these ingredients are mixed, this Christmas meal will be fully, fully satisfying. To the soul. But we must take one ingredient at a time because, in a real sense, we need all of them. All of them. No shortcuts allowed. And we will begin today, this Christmas month, where John begins. Here is the first ingredient for a fully satisfying Christmas feast. Ready? Two words eternal realities. Eternal realities. Realities, and this is found in verses 1 through 5. Now, before we read that passage, do you see the immediate message that is quite forcefully projected through those two words? In case you don't see it, let me help you. For Christmas to be fully satisfying and fully savored within the heart and the mind, the place to begin... The place to begin is in those realities that transcend 
our human existence and our human experience. We must, as it were, remember that we are not the beginning, we are not the center, and that we are not the end of all things. In other words, we are not secular. As Christians, we don't live our lives as if they were confined to this world exclusively. We believe in the transcendent and in the infinite. And even though we would never claim comprehension of these eternal realities, we are comfortable believing them. Christianity is to a great extent about accepting. Listen to this. Christianity is to a great extent about accepting eternal mystery by faith. So as we begin this series of Christmas sermons, we must go to the time in which there was no time and to a place in which there was no place because because of our painfully limited human language, we must be content with calling this time and place eternity. Eternity. And this is a challenge in and of itself since eternity by definition cannot have a starting point, a middle point, or our end point. It is frustrating. I get it. But there is no way around it, is there? We can only speak of these infinite realities in finite ways. We have no alternative since we are confined to the finitude of time and space. So I speak of these eternal realities aware of the fact that we can never do full justice to what we're talking about. In this sense, it is no exaggeration, brothers and sisters, to say that John 1, 1 through 5, is a bottomless ocean of truth. You will never get to the bottom. You will never get to the bottom. So what's the approach for this morning? We'll just try to keep our heads above water so we don't drown, which is easy to do for this simple reason. When the human mind is confronted with eternal realities, our temptation is toward endless speculation. And so we must keep our heads above water by confining ourselves to what the verses actually say, nothing beyond that. By God's grace and the Spirit's guidance, we will accomplish this. So follow as I read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Consider the depth of God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Something becomes very clear almost immediately. The Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, is almost forcing us to think of God in a certain way or more specifically, in a way that does not naturally fit into our human categories. So as we come to these verses, we must do so, let me remind you of this, we must do so in faith. It requires faith for you to listen to God's Word, for us to study God's Word, because at some point you will realize that God, as He is in Himself, is beyond the natural mind. And isn't that what faith is anyway? Faith is to submit your thinking to the written revelation. Faith is not to stand above revelation in judgment 
or next to revelation in skepticism, but under revelation in submission. That's the call of faith. And in faith, we must accept, brothers and sisters, that God is not a mathematical equation you can simply solve to your full cognitive satisfaction. Rather, God is unbounded being. Unbounded being. There's a reason why he's God and we are not. Let me open up our passage by drawing your attention to the central theme which is mentioned nine times in these five verses. So let, let us read it again and count with me. In the beginning was the Word, one, and the Word, two, was with God, and number three, the Word was God. He, four, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, that's five, and without Him, that's six, was not anything made that was made. In him, that's number seven, good, you're keeping count, I'm using my fingers. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light, that's number eight, it's the same, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's number nine. We got nine. Clearly, then, what is the focal point of this verse? The word. Not only of the introduction, but of the entire section, as we will see in verse 14, is that word who became flesh, which is the most astonishing statement ever made, the depths of which are simply unfathomable, and also it is the greatest reality known to man. It is simply the greatest reality known to men. Humbly, then, we begin our explorations of this word. Consider with me the first description. The word's timeless existence. The word's timeless existence. In the beginning was the word. As we consider the word, the first thing we must ask is the beginning of what? In the beginning of what? What beginning is this? Clearly, the reference takes us back almost inevitably to the very first verse in the Bible. And most of you know what that is, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the question is this. Is it safe to conclude that this is the exact same beginning which, to which John is making reference? Some have said, not so far, not, not so fast. In the opinion of a few, the beginning in John 1 is not a reference to the beginning of creation, but to the beginning of new creation brought about by Christ, or maybe even the beginning of his incarnation. This then would be the beginning of a new state of affairs, namely God's redemptive creation through salvation in history through Christ incarnate. Now, even though there is contextual reasons to agree with that statement given John's emphasis in chapter 3 on the new birth, the immediate context seems to disagree. In verse 3, the reference will be directly to the actual creation of the universe. Therefore, it seems quite appropriate to conclude that in the beginning refers precisely to the beginning of what? Creation. The beginning of creation. But the immediate point is this. When all things began to exist, when everything started, 
the word was already there. That's the point. John is not saying that the word began to exist with or alongside creation. Rather, he's saying that this word already was prior to all things being made. To put it bluntly, the word was not created. The word was not created. This will become clear as we move along. So this is the first propositional statement concerning the word. Prior to creation, the word was, meaning the word was already there before all things were created. Is that clear enough? Simple, right? Simple. Next, next, we see the word's clear distinction. Clear distinction. It's going to get very interesting as we go along this passage. The second half, the second part of verse 1. So in the beginning was the Word, and then John says, and the Word was with God. Interesting. If you have ever wondered whether prepositions matter, then wonder no more. Prepositions do matter. Notice how John describes the Word. The Word was with, with God. Is that hard to understand? I mean, first of all, naturally, that little preposition is a preposition of relationship, isn't it? Simple enough. To be with someone means to be in the presence of someone. This can and does reveal a sense of intimacy between the participants. In this case, the Word and God. And that's clearly in view. There is a closeness between the Word and God, whoever that Word is. But the preposition with also reveals that there is a distinction between the Word and God. If the Word was with God, then that can only mean that the Word and God are not what? They're not the same. Am I making sense? It's not hard to follow, is it? So yes, there is a way, a sense in which there is a relationship, but more importantly, there's a sense in which there is a distinction between the Word and God. Now, this is normal human language. We can understand it. It is quite straightforward. To be with someone means that we are speaking of two, right? can be by yourself and say, I'm with. There are two. No big deal. We are following John because he's not saying anything too difficult. These are eternal realities, but we are tracking along. So far, so good. But remember how I said that John is going to make us think of God in ways that don't naturally fit the human mind? I said that to you. Do you remember that? What I meant is that we are about to be confronted with a language that, though human in every way, stretches our minds beyond their limit. Because John is going to do something that you're not really supposed to do in normal human communication. Look at what John does next as he continues to describe this word. And this is the next descriptor, the word's absolute deity. The last part of what, verse 1. So we know that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, prepositions matter. But then what do we read next? And the word was God. Brothers and sisters, John dropped the preposition. You're not supposed to do that. Not only did he drop the preposition, but he did so in the very next sentence. And please remember what we are doing. 
We are simply reading what John gave us in his gospel. We are simply reading his words. We are not speculating. He literally said the word was with God, which makes absolute sense. And in the very next sentence, he drops the preposition with and simply says, and the word was God. You must also know that John is not saying that the word is similar to God. Not at all. The language is definitive. The word is deity. The word is God. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. As famous and profound theologian Huckleberry Finn said to Tom Sawyer, that don't work, Tom. That don't work. It doesn't work. The language creates a type of short circuit within the mind, doesn't it? But it is clear. John states it as a fact. In fact, it is so clear someone proposed the following translation. What God was, the Word was. Meaning, God and the Word share the same essence. They are of the same nature. Full deity. As one commentator said, the best way to capture John's sense is like this. The Word is fully deity, but not the Father. The Word is fully deity, but not the Father. Do you see what's happening? A natural, non-forced reading of this verse naturally begins to open up before our very eyes the doctrine of God as a perfect unity in diversity. Or as one God in multiple persons. The Word who is God is also with God. I know someone, very personally, who always gets very annoyed when she asks me an either-or question and I answer yes. I'm not going to tell you her name. My wife would be disappointed, so I won't mention her name. So she would ask, do you want to wear this or that? Or do you want to eat this or that? And I say yes. And she will say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't answer the question. But interestingly, in John 1.1 is one of those rare instances in which yes does answer the question. Is the word with God or is the word God? Yes. Yes. And you know what that is? That's faith. That's faith. Can you make perfect sense of it? No. Of course not. But you believe in it. You submit yourself to it because that's who God is. He is unbounded being. He's not a mathematical equation. He's unbounded being, and that's faith. Now we are in a position to address the word, or at least the concept of the word a bit more closely. Where did it come from? Well, in the Greek New Testament, John used the word logos, which came into the English language as word. It is logos. And if there ever was a term with massively broad semantic range, it was the word logos, L-O-G-O-S. By using that word, John is actually inviting a very broad audience to listen to him. This is actually brilliant. It is actually brilliant what John is doing. He took the word logos, this extremely loaded term to get people's attention. Now, who was he talking to primarily? A Jewish audience. A Jewish audience. But the concept of the Logos was known all over the Greek-speaking 
world. You see, different traditions had different conceptions of the Logos, especially in the first century Greek-speaking world. Six centuries before the coming of Christ, a Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus believed and taught that the Logos was thought. Thought. You know your thinking? Thought is the Logos. It, thought is in control of all things. Thought is that which orders the universe. So we think, and our thinking is simply us participating in that which rules the universe, namely thought, capital T. And he actually referred to the thought or thought as the Logos in his writings. For Heraclitus, Logos was thought making things happen in the world. Thought, this, this ambiguous idea is in control of all things. And he even ascribed eternal and divine qualities to thought. Another Greek philosopher, Cleanthes, believed that universal law, universal law was the cause of all things, and he also called it logos, logos, word. Later on came the Stoics, founded by a man named Zeno. The Stoics took Socrates' logos, which he called the rational principle, and he joined it with Heraclitus' idea and began to teach people to live their lives according to this supreme principle of universal or natural law, also known as the rational principle or reason. Reason. Eventually, these ideas gave way to pantheism or the doctrine that everything is God. Now, here's where things get interesting. A Hellenistic Jewish philosopher named Philo, and by Hellenistic I mean a Jewish man highly influenced by Greek philosophy and thought, his name was Philo, he sought to combine all these ideas of the Logos coming from Socrates and Plato and the Stoics and Jewish thought into a new framework. He combined all of it. And he called the Logos the divine mind. The divine mind. But there was something that all these conceptions of the Logos had in common. As D.A. Carson says in his commentary on John, for Philo and for all other philosophers of antiquity, the Logos, this reason, this thought, this universal law had no distinct personality. But John thought differently. Consider the next descriptor of the word. The word undeniable personhood. Verse 2, the word's undeniable personhood. Notice, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. We have seen how the concept of the Logos was quite broad, and here again is where we can appreciate the brilliance of John using this term in his gospel. The ideas associated with the Logos would have reached many audiences, not only Jewish, but also pagan philosophers, early Gnostic ideas, and Hellenistic Jewish who were trying to combine Jewish and Gentile thought. But in verse 2, in verse 2, and in a way preparing us for what he will say in verse 14, John does something that sets his Logos Apart from all others, he calls his logos a he. He. 
This is shocking. Not only to his original audience, but to anyone living in the first century Greek-speaking world who was familiar with the concept of the Logos. Up until this point, most talk about the Logos was highly impersonal, abstract, and full of great ambiguity. But now here's the Apostle John removing abstraction from the Logos and ascribing to that general concept a personal pronoun. And now John will reveal what he really understands the Logos to be. Now John will fully enter the Jewish mindset and open up the Logos in a way his Jewish audience would have considered familiar, yet mind-bending. Now it is important to remember something here. Don't forget this detail. The Jews were accusing the Christians of being heretics who had departed from what? From allegiance to what? I'm going to give you a clue. The Christians had departed from allegiance to the Word of God. To the Word of God. That was the main accusation. That to follow Jesus was to deny Scripture, meaning the law and the prophets, all the writings. To be a Christian was ultimately to deny the Word. Are you getting this? To be a Christian, the Jewish mind, that meant you were denying the Word. But under the Spirit's inspiration, John will address this objection in verse 3 with the next statement concerning the Word. Consider the Word's cosmic work. Verse 3, all things were made through, once again, Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Here is where the Apostle John clarifies what he means by in the beginning. Not only clarifies it, but places guardrails around us so we don't make the terrible mistake of thinking that the Word Himself had a beginning. In fact, John is clearly drawing a line between the Word and what? The rest of creation. All things were made through the Word, which by necessity means that the Word Himself does not belong to the category of all things created. The Word Himself is not a part of the created order. He stands outside of all things because all things by the Word were made. With that clarification in mind and in place, we have to then consider what he's saying in the Jewish mindset, how did God create the world? In the Jewish mindset, how did God create the world? Undoubtedly, in the Jewish mind, God created the world by or through his word. His word. Now, remember, John has already presented the Word as a person. As a person who was with God and is God, but now he's saying something that would have resonated with everyone. This Word was the agent of creation. This sounds very similar to Solomon's teaching about wisdom. According to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 27, when God established the heavens, wisdom was there. In fact, in verse 30, he says that while God was creating all things, wisdom was there beside God like a master workman participating in creation. Wisdom was with God creating all things. Now, let me ask you this. Is Proverbs teaching that wisdom itself was created? Well, of course not. If that were the case, then we would have to say that God was not wise prior to the creation of the world. That would be ridiculous. For how long has God been wise? Eternally. Eternally. 
what happened during creation, the creation of all things, is not that God's wisdom came into existence, but that God's wisdom was put on display. God created the world to display his wisdom. But please understand this. There's a very intimate connection between God's wisdom and God's word. Both wisdom, God's wisdom and God's word are said to be creative agents in the word, in the Bible. In Psalm 33, verse 6, the Hebrew Old Testament says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And then consider what the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by what? The word of God. Important for us to know is that over time, at least in Jewish tradition, the words wisdom, word, and Torah, meaning the law of Moses, became somewhat expressive of the same idea, God's divine speech. God's wisdom, God's written scripture. Therefore, when John spoke of the Logos, he had all those things in mind. Logos in John means the comprehensive word of God, the Torah or the law, wisdom, and creative speech, all of it. Therefore, the point that John will make in verse 14 is astonishing. It is astonishing. That word... That comprehensive word that the Jews loved is the he of verses 1 and 2 who became flesh. So John is saying this to, to the Jewish community, to his opponents, while you are accusing us Christians of rejecting God's word by following Jesus, says John, here's the shocker. The reality is that a rejection of Jesus is the ultimate rejection of what? God's word. Because he is God's word in the flesh. Here's a summary of what we have said from one commentator, and I quote, John's choice of the word logos to articulate his Christology was brilliant. No concept better articulated an entity that was both divine and yet distinct from the Father. By using this term, John could present Jesus as the epitome of what his community's opponents claimed and value, namely, God's word revealed through Moses. Jesus was thus the supreme revelation of God. The Torah had gone forth from Zion. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy from Isaiah. My word will go forth from Zion. How did he do that? By becoming flesh. This, by the way, also explains the plural language of Genesis 1.26, where God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. If the word was in the beginning of creation with God, but he's also God sharing in the same essence, then it is only appropriate for God to say, let us, plural, as opposed to let me, singular. We were made in the image of God who is one, but who can also say, let us make in our image. Why? Because in the beginning, the word was with God because God said, let there be light. God spoke the word into existence and the word was God because by him, all things were made. 
But this word, which was with God and who was also God and by whom all things were made, has characteristics that John mentions directly. Here is then the last statement regarding the word that we will see today to complete our first Christmas ingredient. The word's communicable attributes. The word's communicable attributes. Verses 4 and 5. In him, in the word, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John mentions two attributes of the word, life and light. In him was life. That statement is not a statement of possession only, but of being. In other words, John is not only telling us that the word possesses life, but that actually he is life. He is life. I would like to show you Two passages that expand on this truth very wonderfully. If you have your Bible, please, please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're going to read two passages in conjunction. First, Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 11. As you find it, remember what John says about the word. In him was life. In the word was life. Life. Now follow as I read Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 11. Verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who shall ascend to heaven to bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither it is beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Verse 14. But the word, do you hear that? The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Now keep those words in mind and now turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We're going to begin reading in verse 6. Romans chapter 10. Please consider with me how Paul interpreted those words, the passage we just read from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Here's Paul's interpretation of those words. Romans 10, beginning in verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? Does that sound familiar? That is, to bring who down? Christ, wait a minute, wait a minute. In Deuteronomy said what? The word. Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Verse 7. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring what? Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and your heart. Go to verse 9. Very familiar passage, right? Because if you confess 
confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What do you confess with your mouth? Where is life? In God's word. So what for Moses was the commandment or the word for Paul has a name, a name. Christ Jesus. And when he is on your lips, think about this. When Christ Jesus is on your lips, when the word is near your lips by confessing his name, Jesus, you're what? You're saved. Why? Because in him is life. In the word is Life. Moses and Paul spoke the same language. Life is in the word. The only difference is that Paul knew the name of that word, and John is simply expanding on the truth that life is in the word. That's why Moses could say, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, then you shall live. In him was life. But also the life was the light of man, John tells us. What does that mean? Notice in verse 5 of John, go back to John 1 now. And notice how in verse 5 of John 1, he speaks of light and darkness in conflict. Do you see it? The darkness seeks to overcome or conquer the light, but it can't. Based on the verses that follow, I tend to think that this is a reference to the darkness brought about by the entrance of sin into the world. Otherwise, the language of conflict wouldn't make a lot of sense. This light-darkness duality will state with the Gospel of John throughout. And this is what I mean by the communicable attributes of the Word. The Word is life and light, but He doesn't keep those attributes to Himself. Did you see that? He can share or communicate them with us who are dead in sins and lost in darkness. So in verses 4 and 5, John is already hinting at something amazing. The word who is life and light did not stay indifferent to the human condition. He shared his own life, his own light, because he is the light of man. He gives it. That, my friends, is Christmas. The word who was with God and who was God did something for us. Man as some are insisting, and we'll talk about this more in future sermons, is not a cancer on the earth. Some people are saying this, believe it or not, that we are the problem. You know why I know that's not true? Because the word loved men. Men. How did the word express his love? John will tell us with incredible power in verses 14 through 18, which we'll see in December 25th. For now, consider these two lessons as we prepare for Christmas and we'll finish. Two lessons. First lesson. Here's what we learn from these verses. No Trinity, no Christmas. That's the first lesson. No Trinity, no Christmas. Let me put it this way. The Christian God who is triune is the only God who can save humanity. When you consider the gospel in light of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it all begins to make sense. Why? Because only a triune God, three in one, 
only a triune God can communicate, and that's a key word, can communicate himself to us. The Father sends the Son. The Son comes into the world on behalf of the Father, and the Spirit goes into all the world on behalf of both the Father and the Son. And it all happens as one single glorious work, which we call redemption. It is one work. Now, I will seek to unpack this in more detail as we navigate the rest of the section and look to the second ingredient of our Christmas recipe next Sunday for a fully satisfying Christmas feast. Okay, don't miss it. And the second lesson and final, Christmas is the eternal God who exists outside of time and space, sharing himself with us in time and space so that we could participate in his eternal life. In other words, Christmas explains how we who are lost in sin and darkness can participate in that which belongs only to God, namely light and life. Those two attributes belong only to deity, properly speaking. Light and life belong to that which is atemporal, eternal, infinite, and timeless. Christmas is the foundation for everything because Christmas tells us how that divinity, atemporality, eternity, infinity, and timelessness entered into our human experience so that we could have what belongs to the divine. Peter said it best, 2 Peter 1.4, we have become partakers of what? The divine nature. How can we do that? By the divine nature coming to us. And all because of Christ, who is the Word incarnate. So let us rejoice as we come to the Lord's table this morning and we consider the depth of that body and that blood shed for us. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for reminding us of your word, the one who in the beginning was with God and who was also God, who was in the beginning with God. We are painfully aware of the fact that we have barely scratched the surface. And so we understand that ultimately, The call of faith is not to full comprehension of all these mysteries, but to the worship and adoration of your name. And so we bow our knee before you, Lord, and say with the angels, glory to God in the highest. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.